ears are going crazy or does it seem like it's, the sound's rattling around in here a little bit more than before? Is that right? Is it? Harder to hear? Is it? All right. Well, I'll just speak a little more slowly, like some of you guys from Mississippi. <laughs> Got you that early in the morning. You thought you were going to be loved today. Which is exactly what we're talking about. Uh, if you're turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, uh, the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer once said that humanity is like a bunch of porcupines on a cold winter's night. That they want to get closer together, get warmed up, but the closer they get together, the more they prick each other. And that's a pretty good description of humanity. Someone once said, to live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with those we know, that's another story. And that's the way it is. People say, you know, I, I, men will tell me, yeah, I really, I really think women are great. It's just my wife I don't understand, you know. It's those that are closest to us sometimes that are, that are the problems. And I appreciate Jerry praying for the military personnel and their families, being one of them. But uh, it reminds me of uh, Andrew Jackson who, in, in the War of 1812. His men were fighting each other, <laughs> with each other, you know. They get around the campfire and just had these big fights, and they were squabbling. And he gathered all of them around, and he said, "Gentlemen, the enemy is over there." Uh, you know, you have to be reminded every once in a while the enemy is not ourselves; it's it's out there. And Peter is talking to these folks about the same thing. Let's remember who we are, and let's remember how we're supposed to be treating each other. Uh, Theologians will try to give us what you know the marks of the church are, and uh, Protestant theologians would say there are three marks of the church. Uh, one is the uh, faithful preaching of the word or teaching of the word. The other is the right administration of the sacraments, and thirdly, the exercise of church discipline. In other words, you can say all you want, but if you don't live what you're saying, then your church is not a legitimate church. But it seems to me when you look at the in the scriptures. Jesus' greatest mark for the church, the real hallmark of the church, was that, that they love each other distinctively, unlike any other association of people in the world. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And Jesus prayed uh, before his crucifixion, Lord, make them one like you and I are one, that the world may know that you have sent me. Those are remarkable statements about the value of how we relate to other people within his church. That the world looks on, and you know this just as well as I do. I mean, if some of you were adult non-Christians like I was, you became Christians uh, later in your adult life, you know how you looked on and observed things. And so before anyone explains the gospel to you, you're making your own observations. And unfortunately, when we see lack of love in the church, it's sending the opposite message to our city. So today we have a very, very important text in front of us. You remember last week we looked at the, the commandment to live a holy life. Certainly that's a very important thing. So as a result of this great salvation that has been accomplished for us, this great salvation which is yet to be experienced in all of its fullness, Peter first of all says, live a holy life. As God is holy, you imitate him. And then secondly, he's saying this has a tremendous horizontal impact in your life. And we're going to see that all of us have to change in order 
to relate to other people the way that Peter's describing. We'll get to that in a few moments. Let's, let's look then at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. We'll read through 2, 3, because I think these verses kind of hang together. 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes, babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, it's really simple. We must love one another. That's the commandment. That's what Peter's saying. And Peter heard it from the lips of Jesus on multiple occasions. He is simply passing on what he knows to be at the very heart of the gospel, that if we believe this gospel, it has to be demonstrated in a life that, is, that becomes truly loving. Now notice, first of all, he's saying that this love comes from your very conversion. It comes from conversion. In that, first of all, in our conversion, we have purified ourselves. We have purified ourselves through our conversion. See how he says it? Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. So our conversion is can be put in terms of obedience or it can be put in terms of faith because they go together. And he calls here our conversion the obedience of truth. You've obeyed the truth. That is, you receive the truth. You believed it, you put it into practice, you put your trust in it. And so whether it's obedience or faith, it's the same, two sides of the same coin. So he's basically saying when you were converted, something happened to you. You were purified. In other words, the word had a purifying effect upon you from the very beginning. Otherwise, you didn't receive it because the word is very powerful. It cleanses, it renews, it, it gives life. So he says something important has happened to you. He's speaking, of course, largely to Gentiles, but he's speaking to Gentile converts, people who have a common experience. And you know what? It's good to be reminded every once in a while the experience you've had. And sometimes when you've had it for 30 years, you kind of forget the value of it. And he says, hang on just a minute. Let's remember what happened to you. You had something very dramatic happen to you and your life was was dramatically changed. And I, I remember when I was 25 years old. How that first year was such an unbelievable year. Everything was changing. My relationships at work were changing. Certainly my Sundays got changed. My financial life changed. My marriage changed. My child rearing changed. Everything changed. That first year, I remember just feeling like I've just gone onto another planet. Uh, everything's being turned inside out, upside down. Or rather, what it was, it was, it was being turned right side up. Uh, it, was, it was upside down before. But it felt that way. And what Peter is reminding us of is that this is the very nature of receiving the Word of God. Now, if you've not had that kind of change in your life, you don't sense any change whatsoever. 
And you've been going to church. Fine, you're going to church. But remember, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. You know? It's, it, it's something that changes in your nature. It's not where you are, it's who you are and what's been happening to your nature. And Peter says, you got purified. In other words, something's already happened to you. This has already started. Now, if you're here this morning and that change hasn't happened to you, I want to tell you, you've got a great experience ahead of you. There, there's been nothing more dramatic or exciting uh, or purposeful in all my life than when I became a Christian. And I, I, it's scary. I remember it was scary. It still is scary. But it is the greatest adventure I've ever been on in all my life. And Peter's reminding us of this. So if you've received Christ, just remember it, that you got purified, you got changed, your nature changed. And if you haven't, realize you've got something really exciting ahead of you. And then notice that from our conversion, we've not only been purified, but we were in that purity given a sincere love. You've been given a love. When you were converted, you were given a lot of things. You were given spiritual gifts to serve other people. You were given a knowledge of the love of God for you. You were given the cleansing of all your sins and the cleansing of your conscience. Uh, You were just given uh, the hope of eternal life. I mean, the gifts just go on and on and on. But one thing you were also given at conversion was a sincere, unhypocritical is the word here for sincere, unhypocritical, that is genuine, authentic love for God's people. In other words, he's saying at conversion, you're given something that enables you to love your fellow believer. And just think about it. If you are brought into the family of God, then obviously you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, I think that makes you a brother to another guy who's a child of God, right? It makes you a sibling. And you share the common, we were told that we partake in the divine nature. That's what Peter says in his second epistle. So we have a common DNA. We have a common father. We have a common mission. We have a common family. All these things in common. So when you are converted to Christ, there are actually three conversions, if you will. You're converted to Christ, you're converted to the church, and you're converted to the world. And you see the world and love the world the way God does. You're on his mission to the world. But so you get converted to Christ and you get converted to the church. So someone who says to me, you know, I think I, I think I love Jesus and I believe in him and he's the son of God and I believe in God, but just don't have much to do with the church. Mm-mm-mm. No, no, no. Here's what loving, tender hearted Apostle John says. You're a bold faced liar. Whoops. <clears throat> he said anyone who says he loves God and does not love his brother is a liar. So if you say you've got this real intimate relationship with God and you don't care about the church, you're just flat lying through your teeth. And you fooled yourself a lot of times. You really think you have a relationship with God that's intimate. You don't. Because when you're converted, we've seen that you are given a purity by, by virtue of your conversion and you're given all that you need to develop relationships Within the family, you say, well, I don't make relationships very easily. I'm introverted, I'm kind of quiet, I'm melancholy, and I'm a victim of child abuse. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on, and I don't relate very well. Hey, guess what? Conversion is more powerful than your experience. In fact, conversion is your most powerful experience. And Christ will begin to take all those issues in your life and turn them around. Uh, I've I've experienced it. I I know from experience, but even more importantly, I know from what the Bible tells me. That the power of the gospel in your life is more powerful than a poor rearing that you may have had. 
So we've been given a sincere love. The word is anupakritan, unhypocritical. So sincere just simply means you mean it. It's coming from inside. You're not faking it. And most people in this world fake uh, their love for other people, not God's people. We're forbidden from that. And you were given that gift in conversion. Now, notice it's not only from conversion, but it's from the heart. If you look at the second half of verse 22, you'll see that that this this thing really goes deeply. Love one another deeply from the heart. I'd like for us to look at these a couple of these words and look at basically what they mean. First of all, this this is deep. It is a love that is felt deeply. We love one another deeply from the heart. We love one another with deep affection, with great loyalty. This is no superficial thing. You know, I had a real simple thing happen to me years ago that just kind of caught my attention. Obviously, it stuck with me now for over 20 years. I was a pastor. I was in a church where a controversial issue was coming to the session. That's the collection of elders where the decisions are made about the church. And there was an elder who who was in the minority on this issue. And he felt deeply about it. And I know that he wanted his view to prevail. He knew that I actually was probably in agreement with the majority. And he wanted to come to the session and argue his point. And here's what he did before we got to the session. He sent me uh, an outline of his entire case, his entire argument before he made it. So that I had several days and I could circulate it to other men who were in disagreement with him who wanted to argue the case. They could see everything he was going to say before he said it. Now think about that. You know, if you're a lawyer, you know, certain disclosure you know, is not only ethical but legal. You have to disclose certain things in your, in your discovery. But you'd really like to have a few surprises up your sleeve. You'd really like to catch them by surprise and win the case. But if you love the person you're disagreeing with, and especially if you love the one whom you're serving, you want the best decision to come out of this and you want the best relationship to prevail in the group. So if you're going to disagree, I just I thought that was just very kind of him. You know, that he felt strongly what he believed, but he, he wasn't demanding his own way. He was simply demanding that we do the best that we can, which means that he informs other people and lets them get prepared to present their case, knowing the major points he's going to make. I, you know, just a simple thing. But it was all too rare, even in the church, and especially when we disagree. And you can take some of the church splits you know, that we've experienced in this community. How many people did that when they were arguing their case? Whether it was the Baptist church, Methodist church, Independent church, Presbyterian church, whatever it is. How many people carefully inform the other side of what they're doing so that they can maintain a relationship of trust, mutual trust? This is what Peter is saying. You have been given a love that runs very deeply. This is, de- this is family love. And even though we may disagree with one another one, uh, from time to time, we are going to see our disagreements as constructive because we believe they're leading us to better decisions and they are going to only strengthen our relationships with one another because in times of conflict, you've got your best opportunity to display your loyalty. You've got your best opportunity to demonstrate the depth 
of your love for someone. I mean, when I think back in how I've been loved, and boy, I sure have, and the reason I preach love and grace in the church is for self-defense purposes, I assure you, because I need it. I need forgiveness and grace all the time. So if I don't, if I don't preach grace, I'm the first one in trouble. But uh, so I'm sure it's very selfish. But but the times that I've experienced grace is at its greatest depth has always been when someone forgave me for something stupid, idiotic, and unkind that I did. And I'm doing that stuff all the time. And uh, gratefully, I'm surrounded by people who believe this text. <laughs> But Peter says, this is what the church is to be like. This is what your personal life is to be like. Can someone sin against you and be forgiven and restored in relationship? Now, I'm not saying if someone victimizes you or rips you off, that you expose yourself to get ripped off again. That's not love. That's codependence. And sometimes people get into codependent relationships. In other words, you're dependent upon the other person's weaknesses. And you haven't disciplined your life. And relationships have to be disciplined too. So I'm not talking about restoring every business relationship where people are ripping you off. But can you forgive them and actually love them? That's a huge test because that's exactly what Christian love is. It's distinctive. There's nothing else like it. We'll see why in a moment. But notice secondly, he says, love one another deeply from the heart. And the word here actually for deeply is a word that it's ektenos in Greek. It just means fervently or constantly. And I'd like for us to look at both of these aspects of this word. Fervently, passionately, in every way. Jesus prayed the same word fervently, Luke twenty-two forty-four, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what it means. It's like white hot love. It's very fervent. It's passionate. It's deeply felt. It's zealous. We are told of Jesus Christ, zeal for the house of God consumed me. John chapter 2. Zeal for you consumed Jesus. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, come, follow me. Imitate me. There must be a zeal, not just a tolerance, a zeal for the brothers in the house of God, because that is what our conversion has done for us. And so what Peter is saying is you've been given this gift of love. Now fan it into full flame so that it looks something like the love of Jesus Christ. And then he says, love one another constantly, or you could say unremittingly. That's what Deep love is. It, it is a deep affection. It's fervently felt. And it's constant, unremitting. That means, of course, that there's going to have to be forgiveness in the house of God. How many of you in your fellowships uh, really work on relationships when they go awry in your church? How many of you in small groups, when some guy kind of thinks out on you, are fervent and constant and unremitting in your love? How many of us are reconciling the relationships that we've got? What we normally do, and we think of ourselves as being kind of gracious when we do it, we don't retaliate and we just kind of cut them off our friends list. No longer FOS, friend of Sandy. Cut off. I just ignore them. That's my coping mechanism. That's the way I get through life. 
Just deal with the people you can deal with. That's fine in business, I suppose. It is not fine in Christian relationships. It's not fine. And you say, well, I didn't get to choose who's going to be in my church. Of course you didn't. Jesus chooses. You don't choose your family. You say, well, I don't like everybody in the family. I know. The church is really a weird bunch. I remember the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He had just become a Christian. He was a, the assistant to Lord Horder, uh, who was the physician to the queen. So Lloyd-Jones, this bright young physician, has this tremendous career going. He gets converted. He's up in a restaurant in London with this, this group of physicians and others. And they come out on the street at night, and there's a Salvation Army band right across the street playing out of key, beating the drum, you know, and really not present, you know, not doing Handel's Messiah, I assure you. And Lloyd-Jones says his first reaction was to be embarrassed because, you know, he's a new Christian. He really wants to witness to these guys, and here is really not a very good display of, of music of any sort across the street. That's what Christianity is. And then Lloyd-Jones said it hit him immediately. These are my people, not these people. Those are my people. And you know, that's what happens. You get converted to the church. These are my people. This is my family. You know? And most of you have some members in your family and you go every once in a while, well, you know, he's my brother. What can I say? (laughs) It's my sister. It's my mama. You know, don't talk about her. She's my mama. Well, that's the way it is. In the church of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that we sweep sin under the rug or that we pretend as though we don't have weaknesses or that we ignore each other's sins? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, But it means that we deeply love each other constantly regardless of the circumstances. So I have to ask you, how good are you at forgiveness? How good are you? Can you rate yourself this morning? How easy is it for someone to have a relationship with you when they've really goofed up big time. How easy is it for someone to come to you with a sin against you? Do they expect forgiveness or do they expect a long sermon and a cold shoulder for a long time? How easy is it for someone to get forgiveness from you? How quick are you to ask for an apology? Probably some of us in this room have sinned against a brother and it's been some time And we're too proud and we haven't gone and we haven't either written an apology or spoken an apology. We haven't picked up the telephone and said, hey, can we talk? How quick are you? Let me tell you how quick Jesus said you should be. He said you should be so quick that even if you are in the midst of a worship service and you're getting ready to make your offering, he said, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. In other words, this brotherly relational thing is so important that it will interrupt worship. Leave the Eucharist. Go out the door. Go find your brother and be reconciled to him. That is, if your brother has something against you. And it dawns on you in the middle of Eucharist. Leave it. Now, literally, that leaving wouldn't help you very much. Because normally you can't go find your brother in that moment. So you probably practically you finish the Eucharist. But in your mind, that's your number one priority right now is asking forgiveness from that brother. How quick are you to ask forgiveness? You say, well, I'm not sure he would forgive me. What difference does that make? That's on his side of the equation. Your side of the equation is to be someone who knows how to apologize. And you don't say, I'm sorry. You say, will you forgive me? If you go to your banker, you owe him $10,000. 
and you're going bankrupt and can't repay it, you don't say, I'm sorry. No, you say, will you cancel the note? If you, if you say, I'm sorry, he says, oh, no, I'm sorry too. That's fine. And you still owe the, you have the note. You're still $10,000 in debt. You didn't make, have a very good visit to the bank. You've got to go and say, will you cancel the note? So you're acknowledging you're indebted to someone. And you're asking for their mercy to cancel a note. That's what forgiveness is. How quickly are you to do that? It's humbling. It can be humiliating. But it's love. And it's the kind of love that provides constancy in relationships. When you have sinned against a brother and you've gotten your note canceled and he's told you that you're forgiven, how ready are you to make restitution? I'll never forget, years ago, another church, one of our elders stood up on a Sunday morning and gave his own testimony about his personal financial bankruptcy. It was enormously humiliating to him. He said he never had anything more humiliating in all of his life. He could hardly get through the testimony. He was still, even years later in his heart, so humiliating. And he said, I just made a point. I know everybody can't do this when they go bankrupt. But in his case, he could. He had the ability to do it. He said, I went back to every one of my creditors and I made every one of them whole. And I'm just so thankful to God that he enabled me to do that. Well, in his case, he wasn't able to do it. Now, bankruptcy laws are there because sometimes you can't do it. And we need to have mercy in our society. And therefore, if someone gets in that kind of condition, they do need to have their debts canceled. But this man was able on his own to go make restitution. I just have to ask you, when someone's forgiven your sins, how quickly are you to identify what you owe them? And is there any way you can make restitution? Restitution is extraordinarily important in cases where we've sinned against each other. It not only shows the sincerity of our apology, it shows the depth of our caring about someone, that we're deeply grieved that we put them in, in a, a situation of liability. So this is what Peter is saying. Look, you've been given a gift at your conversion. Your conversion, actually, my conversion, were far more powerful than most of us ever realize. We have more gifts than we even can, can deploy in this life. He's saying you were given this enormous gift of conversion. Now take it and run it deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, not only from conversion and from the heart, but it comes from the word. In other words, in verses 23 through 25, here's what Peter is saying. Here's the reason that your love has to be really alive, really deep, really fervent, and has to be constant, unchanging. The reason is... You were given birth, you'll notice in verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What is this seed? It's the living and enduring Word of God. So he's saying, don't you see why your love must be permanent and alive and tender and loving? Because the seed of the Word is kind of like a sperm. In conception, in other words, you were conceived and born by the sperm of the Word. And he says, let me tell you about this Word. It's imperishable. It's not like all your sperm, most of which are wasted, the ones of you have any left. It's, he says, this sperm is alive. And not only, it doesn't just generate a human being who then dies, you know, 83 years later. This sperm generates someone who lives forever. This is an enduring, living seed. And that's what you have in you. And that's the reason that your love must be eternal. 
So think about it. You live here for three score and ten, or a little more if, you, if, if God gives you more years. And that's long enough. But this life goes on forever. And he goes, goes into this quotation, you notice, from Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, we see that he says, all men are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field, no matter who the man is. Alexander the Great didn't get out of his 30s. One of the greatest conquerors ever. Didn't live very long. Take any ruler you want to, any great man you want to, just like the grass. Fades away, falls away. That's what Isaiah is saying. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But then he says, the word of the Lord stands forever. Now think about this context in Isaiah. Remember they were in exile. And they were in exile in Babylon. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful ruler. Very powerful. The one that, he, was, he was the Caesar of that part of the world and of his own day. Very powerful. And he knew it. And what God is saying is, all men, even Nebuchadnezzar, are like grass. And they're going to fall. And isn't it true with all of us, no matter how powerful you ever were, you guys who are older, you know, you may have run businesses, you may have had you know, a thousand people reporting to you, and then you get to be in your 70s and your 80s and you feel your strength going, and you realize, I don't have the same power I had before. Right. And God in His mercy is letting you see your own body wind down so that you have wisdom to see what humanity is all about. Humanity is created in the image of God and we're completely dependent upon Him. And we do not endure forever except through the resurrection from the dead and faith in Jesus Christ. It's by His gift that we endure, not by our own earning. So we become aware of our weaknesses. Yes, we fade away. But look what doesn't fade away. God is saying to the people through Isaiah, Nebuchadnezzar fades away, but let me tell you something that doesn't fade away. My promise to bring you back to the holy city. And I've told you after 70 years of exile, I'm bringing you back to Jerusalem and I'm going to reestablish the city of God. So Nebuchadnezzar will fade away. Artaxerxes will fade away. But my word of promise to you will never fade away. And we have that same hope. This is what Peter's talking about in his epistle. We've been born anew, he said in chapter 1, into a living hope. And that hope will not fade away. Your body will fade away and your friends will fade away. This world will fade away, but the next one will not, and you will not, because of the enduring Word of the Lord. So notice under this that this Word is living, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. It's a living and active Word. It, it cuts. It divides. It pierces. It's alive. It gives life. It gives growth. It gives joy and meaning in life. The Word of God is alive. It's the very voice of God. So when you were converted and took the Word in, there's a living dynamism in your life because of the Word of God. It's enduring. It lasts forever. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away. But my Word, said Jesus, will never pass away. So His Word is eternal. You base your life on His Word. You base your life on eternity. And then notice it is preached to you. He says look, this nice little conclusion to verse 25. And this is the word that was preached to you. Wow. Do you hear what he's saying? 
He's saying that the word in Isaiah 40, the word of promise that God is going to restore his people from exile, the word of promise that he's going to build his kingdom, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, as it were, establish his people in shalom. He's, what Peter is saying, that's exactly the word I've been preaching to you. And what is the word Peter's been preaching to them? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see what this gospel is? It's the fulfillment of all the longings of the, of the prophets, all the longings of the people of God, whether in Egypt or in the wilderness or in Babylon or fighting the Greeks or the Romans or whatever. Peter says this is the fulfillment of all the promises. This is the enduring word that God has sent his son to save not just the Jews to restore a physical Jerusalem over in Israel on the other side of the Mediterranean, but to reach the Gentiles, people like most of us in this room, and to establish us into a kingdom. And in Revelation 21, 22, bring the new Jerusalem down out of heaven and we will be restored to this great city, which is enormous and beautiful and unimaginable. And Peter is saying, that's the gospel. You've been saved in hope. And yes, you'll pass away. And yes, all men will pass away. But the word of God's promise to bring you back to him in community, in authentic life, will never pass away. Wow. That's the reason that you love each other. That's it. And Peter is saying, don't just love each other because it's pragmatic. Because you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or because you want to have a good reputation of being a nice guy. You want to be a good southerner. You know, you want to... Get along with people. That's not it. He says it is the big vision of God's love for us and the future that's been laid out for us. We're eternal brothers, so get used to it. One day we're all going to be transformed and living in perfect harmony, so let's live toward that now. That's the idea. That's the reason that you love. And that's the reason that when you don't love deeply from the heart, and you will not repent. You are showing that you're shutting out the love of God from your life. You don't get it or you haven't received it. Or you're being a very stubborn child indeed. And some of you have some, you know, every family has one or two very stubborn children. And when we are not loving each other, we're being very stubborn children or we're not children at all. And sometimes you just don't know. Because this grand vision is what informs our love for each other. Now, notice in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that this love must grow. We must grow in our love for one another. Not only must we have this love and exercise it, we must be getting better at it all the time. As one of my old elder friends used to say, if you ain't growing, you ain't going. Why? Well, because... This Word is alive. And if it is the Word that's inspiring your love, believe me, it's alive. And when something is alive, what does it do? It grows. You can see it with children. You can see it with plants. If they're alive, they grow. You see it with churches. Generally speaking, if churches are alive, they grow. And that's what's happening with you and your love. Now, how do we do this? First of all, he says in verse 1, rid Therefore, rid yourselves. Therefore, rid yourselves. Therefore, get rid of something. Now, would you please notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, therefore, watch out for these evils that could come upon you. 
No. He says, you've already got them. He doesn't say, watch out for that flu bug. No, you already got it. He doesn't say, watch out for cancer. No, you already got it. He's saying, get rid of something you've got. How does he know you've got it? Because you're like all men who are like grass, who are in a death process. And all of us have what Paul calls the flesh. We're converted and we're being changed, but we are not yet completely changed. If you do not admit that you've got these things in your flesh, or as Paul calls it in another analogy, in the members of your body, it's not the control center. Christ is the control center now if you're converted. But you have these things in your flesh. It's kind of like you've, you've won the big battle and you, you put the flag you know, on the top of Iwo Jima. you got the flag up there. But how many weeks did they fight after that? How many men died after that flag was planted? Hundreds of men died after that flag was planted. They still had battles to fight. And when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, you know, put on the breastplate of righteousness, use the sword of the Spirit, put on the helmet of salvation, he's not talking about some special little prayer meeting when we all come together and say, hey, let's do spiritual warfare together. Gentlemen, he's talking about every living minute of your life. All of your life is a war. Now, it's been won. The flag's been planted on the mountaintop. You're going to win it. But some things in you are going to die. And it's going to be painful. And it's going to take every ounce of your energy in order to fight this battle properly. So let's get with it. we got some stuff that needs to be battled against. We have some things in our body, in our members of our bodies. We have some things in our flesh that have to be battled. What are they? First of all, malice. And he says, rid yourself of all malice. This is just a word for general wickedness. This is how holiness and love go together. The more closely you're drawing to Jesus Christ, the more you're becoming like Him, the better off your relationships are going to be. Now, in one sense, you'll draw more hostility. But notice we're talking here specifically about love within the church. And you cannot have mutually loving relationships in the church when you're acting like the devil. You can't. So rid yourself of all malice, especially with respect to other people. Those things in you that want to bring people down. Those things in you that actually take delight when somebody else has business troubles. I have a friend who was in a Sunday school class. And the teacher said, you know, real love, guys, is when your, your competitor gets a, a, a new Mercedes Benz, top model, all the bells and whistles, and you are delighted for him. He says, that's real love. And one of the men in the class said, I've never had a friend like that. And you know what? Out there in this society, that's the way it is. We generally are jealous in this. We don't wish well for each other. And what Peter is saying is, look, you in Christ have the ability to begin to put to death all those things in you. Go at it. You've got all the equipment you need. You've got, all, you've got the, the sword of the Spirit. And that's all you need to cause the devil to flee. Let's get at it. Get rid of all malice. Secondly, get rid of all deceit. Everything that's, that's two-faced. It's dishonest. That all the guile and the deception, the trickery, unlike my friend, 
who presented his case before he made his case so that his opponents could make their best case. That's the opposite of deceit. It's full disclosure because you love somebody. And when you're making an argument, the last thing you want to do is make friends, uh, make enemies. First thing you want to do is make friends. And friends find out who their friends are when they see how you behave when you're in conflict with them. That's when you tell who your friends are. So get rid of all deceit, all trickery. I know that's difficult in business, and there's some things that you should not disclose in business out of your loyalty to your business. I understand this. But when you are trapped in the business ethics or the business competition that you're in, and it has somehow disadvantaged a friend of yours, I think it'd be a good idea to make it a point afterwards to go and say, look, we were in this deal. You know why I couldn't disclose it to you. It was illegal to disclose it to you, or it would have been unfair to our stockholders or whatever. And I just want you to know that I'm sorry that it, it hurt you. You can do that later. And what you're saying there is my relationship with you and my acknowledgement of Christ in my life is more important than winning in business. So even when you, you're playing by you know, ethical or legal rules that don't allow you to disclose something, you can show your heart so you're not a deceitful man. And we also deceive each other when we flatter each other. Flattery is saying something positive about another person that you don't believe. And the reason you say it is not to help that other person. The reason you say it is to make yourself popular in the eyes of that person. It's a self-centered habit. Flattery. Nor do we gossip and talk behind people's backs. One person said, flattery is what you would say to a person's face, but you'd never say it behind their back. And gossip is what you say behind their back but you'd never say it to their face. It's deceit. And gentlemen, I can give you a good little pagan ethical lesson here that you're going to, it's going to bite you in the butt anyway. You're going to be found out. And everyone's going to gossip about you that all you are is a flatterer and a deceiver. I could give you good pagan advice like that. And that's not bad advice. It's the advice most of our mothers gave us. But the advice Peter is giving you is it's unworthy of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for his friends and who never flattered them. (laughs) You know, he, he would rebuke them from time to time, but he didn't flatter them. He would encourage them. Encouragement is telling the truth, the positive truth about another person. We all need to be encouragers, but not flatterers. And Jesus never gossiped. And we're to be like him. We're to grow in this. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you've got a long way to go. Long way to go. Why? Because your goal is Jesus Christ. And He is not only perfect in that He's never committed a sin, but He is perfectly righteous and He is constantly doing good and saying good from the heart deeply. All of His attitudes, all of His intentions, all of His words, all of His deeds, that's your goal. You're a long way from that. So we're all to be in growth mode. No malice. Get rid of all deceit. Thirdly, hypocrisy. All pretensions. What comes between us and other men? We want to be important. We want to put ourselves ahead of other men. How does a woman think about herself? She thinks about herself based on her primary relationships. That's the reason your relationship with your wife is so key to her self-esteem. Because she thinks of herself in the way that she thinks you're thinking about her. 
if you're not kind to her and don't tell her you love her constantly and are courteous to her and show her that she's the queen, you're eroding her self-esteem. Now, it affects you to some degree if she does the things to you that way. But your primary arena for self-esteem development is not primary relationships. It's the marketplace. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm just saying if if you're typical, that's the way it is for you guys and me. We think of ourselves uh, by how well we're doing in our professions. Same with preachers. You know, am am I teaching well? Am I pastoring well? Am I getting to work on time? Are people telling me I'm doing a good job? I'm not saying we should measure ourselves this way. I'm just saying that's the typical male way to do it. So because of the way you're built and the way I'm built, we tend to image manage. We tend to want people to think that we're successful. And we present ourselves that way. And we present fronts that are not real. And they're just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. And baloney. And you can punch through it with a butter knife. And it is coming between us and genuine relationships. So if you want genuine relationships, you've got to take the mask off. Cut out the baloney. Stop the hypocrisy. Come down off your throne. And be a brother. And you know when... When our presidents go home, you know, Jimmy Carter had his brother. Bill Clinton had his half-brother. And they go home. They're not president. They're brother. It's kind of nice. Send those presidents home every once in a while and just remember who they are. And you need to come home every once in a while and remember who you are, your brother. So cut the baloney. He's saying get rid of that stuff. If you're going to love deeply from the heart, get rid of hypocrisy, pretensions, image management, wearing masks, and so on. And be real. And sometimes this can be a challenge in relationships when we're real with each other because we will have sincere critiques of each other. I remember one time a friend of mine, a pastor, called and he was looking at another opportunity to serve somewhere. And he said, would you be a reference for me? I said to him, I'll call him Paul. I said, Paul, you're a friend of mine. I'd be glad to give you a reference. I said, let me tell you what I'll say when they call me. And I said, I'm going to tell them this, this, and this about you, that you, you really are gifted in these ways. And then I'm going to tell them they need to look at two uh, situations in your life and need to drill down. He said, what are those? And I told him. I said, I, if, I were, if I were talking with you about working together with you, here's where I would drill down. And I'm going to tell them the same thing because I, I love you and I love the institution uh, which you're talking about going to. We got through and he said, Sandy, I thought you were my friend. I said, no, hang on, Paul. I said, do you, do you want a reference or a friend? And a friend really is concerned about your long-term welfare and the welfare of the kingdom of God. You're my brother. And brothers are honest with each other. And I'm not about to lie to someone who calls me for a reference. And I'm not about to tell them something I'm not willing to tell you. And I consider that friendship. And I'm sorry if it's not going to work out. Of course, I end up not being a reference. And I guess I'm not a very good friend. But if someone's going to be your friend, be a friend. And if they don't want a friend, that's their choice, not yours. You be a friend. In other words, yeah, I remember this little poster on my daughter's bedroom wall when she was just a five-year-old. Two little puppies rolling around the grass together. And it said, if you want a friend, be a friend. So if you want a friend, just be one. And the only friendship you can offer is a healthy friendship. If I had said to my friend, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. Well, sure, I'd be glad to just tell them the positive things. 
I suppose he would have thought he had a friend. I wouldn't have thought I had a friend. I would have thought I had a hypocritical relationship that was insincere and not genuine. So only offer health and those who want health will take health. And those who don't, that'll be their responsibility, not yours. And now the challenge is continually offering health to those in the past who haven't wanted health. You continue to offer health to them. You don't slam the door. You don't go in the other direction. You're continuing to offer your love. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus Christ, Jesus offered him a healthy, loving relationship. And if you want a healthy, loving relationship with Jesus, there's only one way to do it. Give up everything you've got. Surrender completely all of your personal ambitions and give them completely to Jesus Christ. That's health. And that's all that Jesus offers. The young rich man didn't want health. He wanted to make a big offering and have his name on a building somewhere. Probably. He wanted to be known as a supporter of this cool, popular rabbi. And so he walked away. And Jesus loved him and watched him walk away. He offered him health. He didn't take health. And so he let him walk away. If you're going to offer real friendship, you're going to have a lot of people walk away from you. That doesn't mean you don't love them. It means that you insist on loving them with the love of Jesus Christ. So no hypocrisy. No envy. We've already spoken of this. And we find this all the time, even in our Christian community with sister churches who treat each other like they're competitors. This is a great sin. We have several churches represented in this room. And the more you get involved in your church and the more you feel excited about your church, the more you want to see your church grow, even if others don't. Let me tell you something about Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis is not going to get healed. Memphis is not going to be a place where people are really coming to Jesus Christ unless all the churches do it together. And something we have to realize about churches is they are sisters. They are sibling churches. They are not competitors. They are branch operations of the same business. So we need to demonstrate to a community around us that we're in this together. If your youth group is doing well, that's great. You ought to hope that everybody else's youth group is doing well instead of sucking all their children out of your youth group into your youth group. You think your pastor is great? Fine. Why don't we see if we can get pastors in somebody else's church like this one? (laughs) You know? And we all say, why don't you come to our church? It's really great. No, why don't we talk about your church and how we can make it a great place? That's what siblings do. That's what brothers do who love each other from the heart. No envy. No slander of any kind. Oh, man. That just cut out half of my conversation. I love to slander people. Backstabbing, bad-mouthing, hurting each other's reputations. Here's my favorite one. Don Jordan's having a problem here. I want to just pass along a prayer request. Right, Don? There's a good one for you. That's called spiritualized slander. Just speaking ill of other people. There's no necessity for this at all. Once you really devote yourselves to love like Jesus Christ, you'll find all kinds of ways to be genuine and real and deal with the real world and real problems and not to be naive and all the rest without slandering people. You'll learn it. You ask me for 14 principles how to do it, that's really not it. Look, just devote yourself to it. Devote yourself to Jesus Christ. 
you'll figure it out. He'll give you, he's given you love. You've already got the principle of love in the word in your heart. He'll show you how to do this, how to be realistic, not naive, solve problems in this world, deal with sin, deal with sinners, deal with evil people, and not slander people. He'll show you how to do it. And he says, get rid of all of it in your life. There was a man one time who slandered one of his friends and just said something evil about him all over the place. And his friend ended up in the hospital on his deathbed. So the man who had done the slandering, of course, felt terrible. He finally was convicted of his sin. He went to the hospital room to confess and to ask for forgiveness. And the man on the hospital bed heard what he had said. And he said, look, I, I forgive you. And the guy said, what can I do to make up? He said, and the man on the hospital bed said, well, there is something you can do. And he said, good, what, what is it I can do? He said, here, take this pillow. He pulled it out from behind his head. It was a down feather pillow. He said, tear it open. Okay, tore it open. He said, open the window. He opened the window. He said, shake it out. He said, well, yeah, shake out all the feathers. He said, now go pick them all up. When you slander, there's just no way to pick it all up. So he said, get rid of all of it. And then lastly, we have two minutes here. Crave the Word. Crave the Word. How do you get rid of this evil? You thrust it out. It's what Thomas Chalmers called the... Uh, where'd you go, Thomas Chalmers? I lost my quote. Oh yeah, here it is. The expulsive power of a new affection. The new affection for the Word of God expels the evil. You can't just get it out and leave yourself empty. Jesus said you sweep a demon out, seven more come back. You can't just sweep the demons out. You expel them by displacing it with a new affection. Affection for what? Christ and the Word. He says, crave the Word. Crave it eagerly like newborn babies. Babies are eager to get the milk. I've seen them, you know, they're looking for that nipple. Their heads are bobbing all over the place. Give me that milk, you know. And he's saying, crave it like that. Crave it purely, not watered down. Pure spiritual milk. This is not for just newborn believers. This is for every believer acting like a newborn. So if you're 80 years old, act like a newborn, he's saying. Act like a newborn goes after milk, pure milk, not watered down. Don't give me this watered down gospel stuff. Put me on TV with a big smile and tell me how to be successful. That's not even the gospel. Don't water this stuff down. Give me the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That I'm a sinner. I need to confess my sins. I need to receive Jesus Christ for salvation. I need to live a life that honors Him. Give me the whole thing, he says. Pure. Fruitful, so that by it you grow up. This milk is made, meant to have us grow and mature continually, no matter how long we've been Christians. Purposefully, into your salvation, so that you look more and more like what you're going to look like when you're gloriously transformed into the likeness of Christ. You're already on that road. You're growing up into your salvation, and your salvation is your ultimate glory. He means future glory here. Grow up into it. How? By the Word. And gratefully... Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, you've taken this word in and what did you learn? Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. You've taken the word in, you've craved it, you've drunk that milk, and here's what you found out. God is good all the time. You've tasted Him and that will expel the antisocial behavior out of your life. That will give you a deep longing to be a lover just as Jesus Christ is. May He ever be praised and may He be demonstrated in all of our lives even today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to love us. And He is here because You so love the world that we might not perish but have eternal life. 
And we pray that the eternity of that life and of that love will be demonstrated in our lives today. Give us wisdom, especially in the difficult relationships that all of us have to one degree or another. May we have the wisdom of Jesus and the boldness to love like him. We ask it in his name. Amen. God bless you all.